0: Welcome to Logically Speaking, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges in cybersecurity with top experts in the field. Today, you're going to learn how to keep your data safe, your operations sound, and your business ready for whatever comes next. This is Logically Speaking. Today's guest, uh, we have Curtis Minder, the founder and CEO of uh, GroupSense. It's a cyber reconnaissance company. Uh, They deliver customer-specific intelligence. Uh, They use a combination of automated and human reconnaissance to create uh, what what I'll call finished intelligence it's tailored to each their customer's digital risk footprint uh, Curtis has also successfully raised this company from the ground up he's got over 20 years of information security experience that span operations design business development um and, and kurt's become one of the industry's leading ransomware negotiators which uh, we'll talk a little bit about which uh he had an interesting uh you know uh foray into but um this is going to be an exciting podcast. Um, we're, we're going to jam a lot in a little bit of time. Kurt, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you know, you and I can probably do a podcast on food and wine pairings, but but we're here to talk <laughs> about cybersecurity. Um, why don't you uh, start off by sharing with our listeners what your experience in cybersecurity is, and uh, maybe we can start there.
1: Sure, sure. And I, I actually, I don't understand why we can't do both, like the food and wine and cybersecurity. This is a new podcast format. I like this. I like this. Uh, yeah, no th- thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Um, honored to be a guest. Uh, yeah so my background, you mentioned I've been doing this for over twenty years. Most of that was was hands-on sort of technical stuff. Um, I, I I was I did various operational roles, anything from you know administration to pen testing to uh, later moved into sort of architecture and design from a security perspective. and I did that at small internet companies and I did it at the biggest internet companies like SBC and, and uh, which is now called AT&T. Um, and then I uh, started doing sort of uh, high-tech startups, um, did a couple of those. And then the last, uh, the last company I worked at was Fortinet um, where I, I was responsible for their service provider team. Uh, I think you and I uh, got connected because of that role. and And then I made the questionable life decision to start a company. <laughs> so that I've been doing this for about eight eight plus years, a little over eight years uh, from when I started GroupSense. And uh, and just, just to get to that real quick, we started very humbly in a coffee shop. And uh, one customer at a time, one use case at a time, uh, we did not do the Silicon Valley uh, sort of get big or go home route. We did the sort of pragmatic uh, growth approach, which is the hard way, but it also allows you to do pretty creative things um, that sometimes in a, in a venture environment, you wouldn't be allowed to do, or or it'd be harder for you to do. Um, and, and most of those things are focused on, you know, sort of customer outcomes and, and desires, which I'm pretty proud of.
0: So a lot of our listeners are in that mid-market SMB kind of market space. And um, in your opinion, how does that mid-market handle cybersecurity and that ever-shifting threat landscape that we have? I mean, I know you and I have worked in so many enterprise spaces, but I know that you've that the SMB is kind of dear to your heart. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think, I think sort of the the well, first of all, the middle market in, in the SMB space. Is, is the backbone of the U.S. economy, right? And, and these, these, this is why it's near and dear to my heart, is um, the, the, the software companies um, don't don't tend to focus on that market. It's a hard market to reach. Venture money um, that the funds a lot of the high-tech startups really fund those startups to, to sell into the early adopter markets, which are the large enterprise and financials, et cetera. As a result, a lot of the tools that are available to these, these the, to the to the market are not really consumable easily by by the broader market, the mid market, and, and and SMB. Um, and you know, so th- these I'm very sympathetic to these folks because uh, they have the same challenges uh, as everyone else. Um, they have less resources to address those challenges. The as you know, there's a sort of a talent gap in the cybersecurity industry. Supply and demand is driving that talent gap up market. Uh, those salaries are just too much uh, for most folks, um, so it 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 presents a pretty uh, cha- you know pretty strong challenge for those organizations to uh, to do to do all of the necessary things to protect themselves and thus the rest of us, right? Because they are the backbone of the economy.
0: Yeah. So. Let's talk industry, right? So, what industries are you seeing that are uh, have the least amount of investment in cybersecurity? Like, what industry is is really lagging in investment?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 always uh, dangerous to generalize these things, but you know, my and my sample size is what it is, right? But 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 um, there are certain industries that that kind of stand out. Uh, I would say a lot of them. There's 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 a long list, but. If you look at some of the more um, sort of operationally driven industries, things like uh, trucking and logistics, for example, or um, uh, manufacturing and, and things like that, seem to be a little bit behind uh, in in these areas. They, they those industries have sort of unique challenges as well, which I'm also sympathetic to. Which is, you know, uh, where where maybe a professional services organization, let's say, a accounting firm or something similar. The systems they use are basically commoditized systems. They're using, uh, you know, Windows and Mac and HP printers and the basic systems that everybody is familiar with. Um, when you start getting into these these industries like manufacturing and, and logistics, you start getting into systems that are not the normal systems. And and it, you're talking about things like um, product lifecycle controllers and, and and things like that 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 have embedded software. Um, but the security of those systems is also critical and difficult uh, to manage.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's um, you bring up a couple of really good points. I mean, when you think about the cyber threats and the, and the threat actors that are out there, what what are you seeing? What's your team seeing that that would be unique to the mid market? Maybe more so than anything else. Is is there anything that kind of jumps out at you that? says this is kind of a new threat vector, or this is kind of the same old routine kind of attack pattern?
1: Sure. Well, I think, um, the, you know, take, for, let's just take nation state activity out of this for a moment and, and, and focus on cyber crime or, or those, those types of attackers for a second. Most of them, uh, you know, for the most part, the best, for, the, for the listeners, they're running a business, right? Um, and just like any other business, they, they're they trying to minimize costs while maximizing profit. And to do that, um, many of them have recognized that, you know, spending a lot of time attacking blue chip companies who have spent ridiculous amounts of money on cybersecurity infrastructure and have a security operations center in-house and all of these things is expensive for them time-wise and resource-wise when uh, they can get access to a lot of the same digital assets, stolen data, et cetera, uh, or, or similar in value by attacking organizations that are not that well resourced. <laughs> so um, what, where I'm going with this is that that, you know, that many of the cybercrime syndicates have rec- recognized that their time is better spent um, on a volume approach, attacking as many small to medium businesses as possible. Um, and when I say, when I talk about the data, what we, so we see uh, uh, just ransomware is one of our specialties, right, so in ransomware, the, you know, one of the things that the threat actors do is they take a copy of as much data from the organization as they can before they execute the ransomware. Well, uh, what we've seen in those in those sort of sample data sets is that, you know, the, the, these, these SMBs and or mid-market companies that are being attacked have some of the same data or some of the same critical data as the big organizations that they could have attacked. Because they're suppliers to those organizations, right? And so they, they, they're they're actually getting access to the same stuff for cheaper, uh, and they've they've recognized this. Um, and that's I think that's something. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about that is, yes, they occasionally are using some sophisticated tactics, but more often they're not. They're using very simple, um, sort of cliche cyber attacks that that, frankly, um, with the right education, it, you know, most of these organizations could could protect themselves from.
0: It's interesting because I, I, we were. I just saw um, a buddy of mine post something on LinkedIn um, about RSA, and um, he said uh, it was an interesting. It's, it was about hygiene, right? Right. He said um, he saw someone leave the bathroom without washing their hands, and he thought, you know, that reflects upon your company and their their own security hygiene. <laughs> right if you don't wash your hands after using the bathroom right and i thought that was pretty funny because you're right some of the basic blocking and tackling is oftentimes the the attack vectors that are used most commonly because hygiene is something that is required you know daily and right. the the vigilance that's required to validate that those things are being done on a continual fashion um People like to focus on the, the the next new thing, and and so the silver bullet when it comes to cybersecurity. So hygiene becomes that much more important. And and um, is there a percentage in your mind that that would protect people against uh, these attacks if they maintain that vigilant hygiene uh, in their networks and and make sure that patching and uh, you know their systems were not out of warranty or out of support. Is is there a percentage in your mind based on what you've seen?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I hesitate to be quantitative about it, but I, you know, in the in the in the attack sample sizes that we've seen, um, yeah, ninety five percent or something. It, it's it's it, it's so it's it's so um, pervasive. Hmm. And uh, this this term hygiene is a metaphor, right? For 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 you know what you were talking about, like washing your hands, brushing your teeth. And uh, when I do these public speaking engagements, occasionally I'll get people who ask sort of the, some version of this question, where they say, "Well, you know, are, is is it going to be necessary for all everyone to become cybersecurity experts?" And my answer is no. Just like it's, you don't have to be a doctor to know how not to die, right? That's just what hygiene is. It's like basic things that keep you alive, <laughs> and approachable as a human being, I guess. Um, but uh, I think I think that you know, adopting a, a few core things for a lot of these organizations, and then maintaining that, is one. It's it's relatively inexpensive to do. It's mostly an educational thing, and then two, um, it it would reduce the the risk for them, you know, a greater than 90%. And one one last thing I'll say is when you hear on the news about how the bad guys hacked into this company or hacked into that company, um, I, I like to remind people that in most cases, the bad guys did not hack it. They logged in. They just logged in. <laughs> and so if we can just prevent them from just logging in, that would be a good start, right? And that's one of those hygiene things,
0: right? Yeah. So <clears throat> I want to shift gears because I did one of the most, you know, interesting things that, that you and I have always talked about are, are these your your introduction into ransomware negotiating. <laughs> and um I, I know you 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 can't mention names, so I, I want to respect that, but could you walk us through a recent negotiation, you know, sure. leave names out to protect the the innocent, but um, you know, maybe share with our listeners some of the Kind of engagements that you've been involved in um, most recently that might help them to either become more aware or protect against you know i, I shared one of your stories recently where um you know a ransomware uh, a company was attacked with ransomware they went to go activate their uh, incident response playbook and it was on a device on the network that had been encrypted right so it, it's one of those scenarios where they forgot to print out their incident response playbook so they would have it in the event of an incident right uh, But could you walk us through one of those ransomware negotiations that you've
1: done? Sure. and, and, and just to set a baseline, when we started doing this a few years ago, we, you know the primary engagement was that it was what I would say th- what I would call threat actor engagement or, or the negotiation part. Over the years, though, it's evolved to be a little bit more comprehensive than that. It includes, um, so what what I'll tell you what happened is, you know, we'd go into these t- negotiations and the first question every victim would ask is, should we pay? And the answer is, I don't know. That's a business decision, right? <laughs> like, I don't know the answer to that. Let me help you uh, figure that out. And and so we, 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 in the front end of these cases, now we're, we're helping the companies sort of fully digest what the, what the ransomware impact is, uh, and then helping to the best of our ability, helping them come to a quantitative sort of decision on whether it makes sense to engage the bad guys at all. And then, uh, ideally that, that quantitative decision would also drive some kind of number, like roughly a range of what they would be willing to pay to, to get out of the situation. Right. Um, the, uh, the other part of that is there's a compliance part so we got to we got to work through that and make sure that you know <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to engage if, if 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 it's against the OFAC sanctions right and so we we have a process for that as well um we then uh if we go through this process with a company and we we decide yes this makes sense um we'll we'll engage um the, then this me that's the meat of the standards that's the negotiation part that's where i or my team engages with the threat actors on the on the company's behalf and, and tries to drive that number down, um, and then and also ensure that we're getting um, you know what we what we ask for for the money. The, there's a parallel process that we run, which involves cryptocurrency. So in the end of this, you're gonna I you know likely make a payment via cryptocurrency to to a threat actor. Most companies don't already have a digital wallet with a, with a balance in it ready to do this, um, and while you know you and I, Stephen, can open up a Coinbase account and just transfer money from our bank account, some commercial banks aren't really cool about that, right? And they and they and they actually limit the amounts and or restrict the amounts that So we need to get in front of all of that because at the end of the negotiation. The bad guys don't care about my banking processes. <laughs> they just want their money, and they get really impatient. Um, so, so those are that's all the components. Um, and, and remind me because I want to come back to the beginning part uh, with the business impact because there's there's this thing I call the ransomware blast radius. I want to talk about that, but I'll come back to that. Just um, you know, recent cases. Uh, yeah. So we, I mean, the one of the things we have picked up on in a, in a very recent case, it was it was it was particularly egregious, is that the threat actors. Have gotten quite good at um, uh, their their casing of the system. So they will they will break in in, the, in this case that I'm about to reference, they broke in uh, a year prior to actually executing the ransomware and they sat in, this is the medium size, uh, let's call it a um, a, a governmental organization, <laughs> uh, medium size. and uh, they they broke in, they persisted for almost a year before they actually executed the ransomware. And during that period, they, they used that time uh, to slowly case the systems, learn where every single network component was, uh, learn how they did their backups, um, get access to the backup systems. But here's, here's the thing that I've noticed that they've been doing lately. And I think there's been a few articles written about this. They also recognize that a lot of other systems are connected to the network. They got into the phone systems. They got into the HVAC systems. They were in the thermostats. Of the of the buildings, right? They had got, gained access to these systems, and, and I, I'm sure that most, you know, of the listeners understand this. But all of these systems are just computers, and they run operating systems, right? And they're connected to the networks. So they're totally candidates for for being affected by ransomware. And when they did execute the ransomware, the impact was um, more than than the typical impact, where you usually have the operational impact from a from a network systems and a computer systems uh, perspective. So that that obviously you can't send email, you can't make payroll, maybe you can't ship product, perhaps things like that. But in this case, they couldn't climate control their buildings, um, and those and those buildings uh, included things like jails. So they got prisoners in jails. They can't <laughs> they can't climate. Tr- so you, um, you can see how good these guys have gotten uh, at at this process. Um, when we did the incident response, uh, you know. Uh, component for this, we, we learned that, that the main um, uh, vector for entry was a very old exchange server vulnerability that, that could have been patched some time ago. And so going back to our earlier conversation about sort of basic cyber hygiene and keeping these systems up to date, um, you know, they, they could have saved themselves a lot of headache uh, by, by just following a, a good patch uh, program and process. Um, I'll pause there and let you ask any questions.
0: No, no, that that's really interesting. I mean, I'm 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 interested in the follow up on the con- comment you made about blast radius, right? So, uh, but but then I have a follow up question, which um, I'd like for you to give your opinion on whether um, victims paying the ransom is feeding the problem, feeding sure. the beast, sure, or should there be like a stake in the ground that, that w- whether it's the government or someone says that we need to stop paying these pay, you know, these these ransoms? I mean, so maybe we talk about the blast radius first or we can sure. talk about the ransom payments second.
1: Yeah, yeah, so um, just r- a couple seconds on the blast radius. So we all understand the sort of the, I think we all understand the the operational impact uh, of a ransomware attack. Um. And we probably understand now at this point, as, as much has been written about it, is sort of the next, you know, concentric circle around that is, is the sort of um, extortion data exfiltration impact, which includes things like brand, tr- trust in your brands, um, you know, customer confidence, uh, right. maybe maybe employee morale, because, because if they took PII and they're dumping employee data, um, things like that. Um, so I think we understand those. The more complicated things that sometimes like outlast the actual attack and and sometimes have a longer lasting and sometimes more expensive impact are are things like, well, what if you can't make payroll for two weeks and 25% of your staff just quits? How much does it cost you to re-recruit, retrain and rehire for those roles? These are things that people aren't thinking about. Um, Intellectual property. So if you're working in the manufacturing space, you, you have a product. I mean, I, I had a conversation with a victim at one point that really illuminated this for me. They were a manufacturer. They, they got hit. And uh, they, just like we talked about, the bad guys took a copy of as much of their data as possible. And in that was a, let's call it a recipe that, uh, for, their, for their manufacturing product and in that data set. And at the end, when we were kind of doing our postmortem and talking about, you know, the go forward plan, the CISO told me that his, while this was painful and expensive, the, pro, the actual ransomware attack itself, his biggest concern was if that intellectual property ends up in the hands of my competitor in China in five years, I have a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's in and and the smaller the company and the more critical that that sort of trade secret is, the bigger impact it might have, right, and, and on their business specifically. So these are just things that we, we want people to think about um, when prioritizing protecting themselves from a ransomware attack. It's more than just your stuff doesn't work for a couple of days. It's more than that. It's a lot more than that. Right. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> oh, no, that, that's, that's really good. I think I was having a conversation with a client uh, just the other day and um they were not thinking about the cascading like the ripple effect of right. you know some type of outage and and what we talked about was not just um a ransomware attack or a cyber attack but anything catastrophic to their from an environmental standpoint and and this was a manufacturing plant around um you know the food industry, and mm-hmm. and they they had a major operation in, in you know making sure that the integrity of what they were mixing and and the food that they were dealing with um, at various levels, right? So there's a physical level, there's a logical level, there's a cyber level. So it it, yeah, I mean you're absolutely right. The cascading effects are can sometimes be disastrous. In this case, they would have to shut down the entire plant if if they had some uh, challenges and then eliminate all of their inventory food wise and, and ensure that, that things were, uh, to the, you know, the regulatory, uh, levels. So it's, um, you're absolutely right. There's so many layers. And I think that oftentimes most people are just thinking operations, making sure that things are continuing to go, but there's brand protection and others. So, So that's really good. Um, what about, like, uh, you know, what, what's your team seeing that that uh, could possibly give our listeners that look over the horizon? Is there anything that you can? I know you don't have a crystal ball. But, like, is there anything that you're seeing that are new kind of attack patterns that might be uh, uniquely uh, different from what you've seen in the past?
1: Um, you know – other than the threat actors continue to innovate on, on the kinds of systems, again, going back to my original comment, which was they're running a business and they're trying to figure out how to do this more quickly and more cheaply, um, you'll, you'll find you know, some articles written about some of the new attack vectors around things like virtualization, uh, things like that. And so they, you know, the threat actors have recognize, hey, we can impact more systems by attacking the bare metal sort of um, virtual machine uh, operating systems, which have virtually no protection on them to begin with um and yeah so they're getting smarter about that i think you know if i was going to say something positive i think you know awareness is up <laughs> um you know the the white house just released the cybersecurity strategy uh, doctor, uh, uh document i don't know if you have got a chance to review that but you know there's some encouraging things in there although you know government doesn't exactly move at our pace stephen <laughs> <That's laughs> uh, but true. i'm encouraged that it at it, that it's getting visibility at that level um and i think uh you know, and I, I we've seen where you know federal law enforcement has been able to disrupt some of these folks. Unfortunately, you know, not very many bad guys are actually getting arrested, so they just stand a new one up. But uh, it, it makes it expensive for them. And and as long as we can continue to to raise the bar from a protection and prevention standpoint on our side, and and have the law enforcement doing their part, um, I think you know it makes it harder for the bad guys.
0: I want to I want to tap your you know kind of. Experience When it comes to artificial intelligence, because that, that's been something that's, you know, everyone's talking about AI, chat GBT, um, spoke to someone in the industry recently about uh, phishing attacks that are becoming highly scripted and very, um, like, almost spear phishing, mm-hmm. using things like chat GBT that um, are really hard to to determine whether or not it's a phishing attack or not But right. i mean how are you seeing ai on the threat actor side but then also being used for good to combat those types of attacks
1: yeah i mean you 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 hit some of the use cases i mean the very first application you know that the threat actors jumped on with with the ai is was was were the phishing campaigns um we we did some experiments early on too with with Tools like ChatGPT, where we, you know, we said, hey, look, here's my profile. I'm a a 46-year-old male. I live in Colorado. I, you know, just describe, I'm a CEO of this company. This, you know, this is anything that you could find out about me on LinkedIn, I guess. And then we just ask ChatBT, how would you send me a phishing email, an effective phishing email? And it was good. It was real good. I would click on that. It was really good. And so what it does is it, it, it it adds a level of scale customization to those phishing attacks that are kind of scary. Um kind of scary. Now the second part of your question is can we combat that? I think so. I, you know th- that same AI technology can be used to learn about those attack tactics and automatically create protection mechanisms inside our, our mail appliances and things like that. Um, I think those are those are useful um, tools. It also helps with uh, you know just general knowledge transfer for for folks, um, our our analyst team uses the AI technology for explaining uh, mitigation techniques when we send an advisory, and, and to do that more quickly and at scale and with more detail is useful.
0: Yeah, no, that that's that's interesting, and I, I think that the speed with which these things are being created, which used to be marked in like weeks and months are now marked in hours or yep. minutes, right? And that's, to me, the most concerning um, because our ability to react to them, you know, it's always this cat and mouse, right? Our yep. ability to react to that, we have to be that, that, that much faster. Exactly. Um, let me ask you kind of a forward thinking, how do you think um, the cybersecurity landscape is going to change over the next five to 10 years, right? You and I are I hate to say it, but but we're we're some of the older uh, <laughs> guys in the industry. But I mean, uh, how do you see it changing in the next five to ten years? I mean, you and I have probably, you know, we were in this when all the rage were firewalls, and that right. was like, ooh, that's that's so new. And and then IDS came out, then IPS, and then now, you know, so now we're talking next gen things and right. leveraging AI and and machine learning. What do you think is kind of the next wave that if you if you had kind of let that time machine and go out 10 years, yeah. what do you think will, will be that next wave?
1: Yeah, I think you could do a whole talk just on that. I mean, there's so many things in play right now that, um, and you're right, you know, I remember the first firewall that I ever installed in the state of Illinois. And uh, it was a checkpoint, it was running on a sun, no, it was running on an HP... I forget the name of that server. It was a, it was a cool uh, bladed server that we installed. And I, I, re- I remember when they told me, you know, the purpose and I was like, why do you want to block traffic? Why would you want to block traffic? It's the internet. What? <laughs> why would you buy something that stops the traffic? I don't understand. Um, so, yeah. We've come a long way uh, from, from that. Right. Um, I think, uh, you know, pos- on the positive side, the, you know, the, the, the technologies like AI are going to make our software smarter um, and, and make it more difficult for the threat actors to get creative. Uh, and, and, and hopefully, you know, when used in the development process itself, maybe prevent us from making some of the development mistakes that create these vulnerabilities to begin with, um, which also the White House strategy document talked a little bit about, you know, sort of some some taking some ownership, uh, the, the, the software manufacturers taking some ownership of that. Um, and I think AI will help with that. Um, quantum throws a whole wrench in this thing. Uh, you know, when that becomes, and it will, uh, when that becomes a thing, encryption is going to be a whole new, there's going to be a weird flip from from today's encryption to quantum encryption, and it's going to have to happen quick. And there's already a bunch of companies working on this. And uh, so that's, that's going to be fascinating. I think just from a, from an, like a, a macro level sort of um, cybersecurity discipline standpoint, I, I do think that you know we're we're an industry that sort of uh, you know accidentally appeared um, with the, with the, the quick adoption of technology, and and for the longest time, you know, you know, it it has been an off afterthought for for both the people writing the software and the people consuming it, and so on, uh, which may, has made our job frustrating at times, as you as you might recall uh, you know, like people just not getting it. Um, but I do think, you know, in the next, you know, five years that that shift is going to happen. Cybersecurity uh, and, and information security is going to be, you know, part of the fundamental operations of a company. Um, people are going to recognize that this is the new, this is the new risk landscape. And, uh, and, and I think ransomware in some ways has a, a pretty profound impact on this, because if you think about you know, what a cyber attack, we've almost forgotten about this, right? What a cyber attack was, I don't know, seven years ago, you know, cyber attack was somebody broke in and they took something and it was embarrassing, (laughs) right? That was it. They took something and you're like, oh man, I got to pay a fine. I got to notify somebody, you know, that's embarrassing. And so you, you kind of designed your cyber strategy around not being embarrassed, you know? Um, that's not what this is. this is like complete operational interruption. This is like your stuff does not work, right? like nothing works. Um, and so that I think that's forcing an issue where companies are like, hey, this you probably ought to prioritize this uh, from a from a budget and, and operation standpoint. I think in the next few years that's going that's going to continue and grow and, and become part of our fundamental uh, business process.
0: yeah, it's interesting. I, th- I think that um, cyber insurers are starting to get wiser about how they insure against these types of attacks Um, in in your space. How do you view that kind of playing out over the next few years? Like I just spoke to a client that said um, their premiums were going up, you know, by two, three times Mm -hmm. uh, unless they adhere to some base level countermeasures that they did not have. So do they invest or do they pay the insurer? Do they rely on cyber insurance as that net? I mean, do you have an opinion on on how that's going to evolve and and whether or not the cyber insurers are going to remain in this market?
1: Well, as long as there's money, you know, I think they will. I, and, I, and I do think, I think I've seen what, the same thing you're seeing where, you know, used to when you signed up for cyber insurance, you got a questionnaire and you just filled it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then it is underwrote based on your your answers to the question. Now they check. <laughs> now they're starting to like, oh, do you? You really have that? Let's see it. Right. And so, you know, I think that's good. I think that's going to drive good cyber hygiene. And I think that the equation that you just spelled out, at least most reasonable folks are going to go, I I probably should make this investment anyway. Um, you know, uh I I the I think the challenge is, and I, I could see why someone would be hesitant to, is that the operational sort of maintenance of those things can be cumbersome. But this is why you partner with service providers. And, and we, we probably should talk about that in the front end of this. But, you know, I fundamentally also believe that for the broader market, uh, you know, the, the sort of security operations component is is a utility. It's it, don't, Companies are not going to be able to hire and retain the talent to run this stuff in-house, and they shouldn't. That's not their core competency you know, they, they should not do those things. Um, They, there, are, there are companies like Logically that can help uh, these companies with that. And, and, you know, that's just going to have to be part of the, the go forward future.
0: Yeah. That, thanks for the plug. Um, so well <laughs> um,
1: sincere. It wasn't, you
0: know, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I act absolutely agree. The customers that I've been meeting with are, are, are exactly struggling with that same kind of resource constraint. Do we find, do we hire, do we partner? Um, And in the middle market, they're competing with the larger companies who pay better, who, um, who are, you know, basically snapping up these resources as quickly as they can with, with minimal experience, one, two years right. experience, and they're right. paying premium for them.
1: That, that's what I was going to say. And I'm sure you've, 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 um, you've probably cautioned some of your, your, your prospects about this is like, can you find somebody out of college who will, who will run your, you know, your security operations for you? Yep. Yeah. And you'll, you'll, you'll send them to classes and you'll train them. And in 12 to 24 months, they're going to get a job offer that's three X what you can afford and they will leave. Yeah. Um, and then you're going to have to do it again. And then you're gonna have to do it again and you're gonna have to do it again. And, and so, you know uh, I, that's why I think the service provider model is the best way to go.
0: Yeah. You know, part of, part of our listenership is um, in the state local educational marketplace. Um, do they have any unique in your experience, unique challenges outside of like private companies? In your opinion? Is there anything unique about that or, or should they view things the same way that private organizations are viewing them?
1: Um so yeah, I think there is some unique challenges, and I, I think they're different for the different categories too. So, you know, state, state and local and municipal. Obviously, one of the similar challenges they have is they have um, few resources uh, to to deal with this, Um, and you know it's sort of driven by by politics sometimes rather than (laughs) those budgets are driven by politics rather than than you know the 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 more pragmatic approach to viewing risk. Um, So I think those are those are unique challenges. They they can't in a lot of cases like we talk about ransomware they they cannot uh, pay ransoms they or at least on the books they can't officially pay ransoms right i, I i've seen cases where they there's workarounds for that that they have used but um that, that puts them in a, a a bad spot and you know their constituents are different like you know your employees are different than than your taxpayers and and so you know those those things uh, it's nuanced but those things can be very um uh, what's the word incendiary when when there's an event right where when you start talking about taxpayers information taxpayers dollars going toward you know sort of cyber event response and things like that um, and so it, they it is unique for them education is even you know even more challenged because you know the, one of the things about education one of the good things and bad things is that it's a very open environment they, they they're not. Um, the, the you know it, it, information sharing is a big part of education, and they don't lock things down the way uh, a normal institution would by design. Um, and you know, striking that balance for especially for the larger institutions is pretty hard.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, I want to kind of shift a little bit and talk a little bit about your opinion on cyber warfare, and and how that will evolve over the next few years, right? um with the conflict in the ukraine we saw that there was a an aspect of um cyber warfare in that kind of initial attacks any anything any thoughts on that on on how that's going to evolve you know we we got the alerts from the government that said be aware we're at a heightened state of possible cyber attacks from russia and and then it never really materialized but
1: or, yeah, or did it? Or, or or did it? And, and so that, that's <laughs> that's a good point. So that's that's you know, I mean, I could again, I could talk we could do an hour talk on this alone. Um you know, there's and actually there's been some pretty good books written recently on these topics. actually, there's one of them behind me here. The Art of Cyber Warfare by John John DiMaggio. You should read that book. It's a good book. Um so uh the our, our adversaries uh, i won't name the specific countries right now but our adversaries have for years been successfully infiltrating our power grids and um our networks you know the the nation state components of these countries primarily russia uh, north korea and iran or the uh, and, and china are kind of the ones we're talking about China has been doing it primarily for industrial espionage, less cyber warfare, but they're they're similar um, in that some of the stuff that they're stealing is military. <laughs> um, I I do think so. I, again, I, I'm going to try to make a short version of this thing, but like we 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 created an amazing cyber weapon when we did Stuxnet. yeah, It's amazing, remarkable that when we and for the listeners, this is where we went. We sent software to basically go mess up Iran's nuclear enrichment program and it worked. And I just think like in the military, like let's say you create a a new weapon that nobody else has, which is what we did. We created this new amazing weapon that nobody else has. And it can, let's say, for example, this is just hypothetical. This weapon can shoot through any kind of uh, surface. What's the next thing you do? You make a surface that that thing can't shoot through, right? That's the next thing you should do. We didn't do that. So we created we created industrial espionage slash, you know, uh, malware that can destroy uh, ICS control systems, you know, from a remote, whatever. And when that got loose, it was used against us and it was used against Ukraine and we weren't ready for it. And so I think, you know, going back to, to the cybersecurity document, the, the government, they're now recognizing, hey, we're, we probably should have done this before, but we need to shore this stuff up. Um, I live in Western Colorado. Uh, tomorrow, actually, I'm speaking uh, at a at a um, a meeting where I'm I'm trying to get grant dollars to to help with this. Like, it's no secret to Russia that one quarter of the U.S. population is fed by a single river that runs through my town. <laughs> and what have we done to make sure that all of the industrial control systems that that control that water are secure? Probably not enough right probably not enough. And so I think we're behind, and I think that um I think that that we're finally getting uh, you know, I think we're finally getting wise to the fact that we're at risk here if there were a, a larger kinetic impact that this could be used against us um and the, and the 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 I'll tie it to to the the role that everyone plays, including our customers and our, our constituents, and that is that this basic cyber hygiene thing that we talked about is in my mind, and I've, I've done talks on this, is in my mind, a civic and, and national security issue. Um, and it's a form of patriotism. You, mm. and so what the threat actors are doing, remember the threat actors are operating out of Russia, let's say 85% of them are operating out of Russia or a Russian friendly country like Belarus, Moldova, et cetera. They, the first, what is the first thing they do? They take a copy of as much of our data as they can. Those threat actors, in that country are, are not nation state actors necessarily, but they're afforded a sort of unofficial amnesty for that activity. They're, they're got, nobody's putting them in jail in Russia for doing this. There's a quid pro quo for that amnesty, right? The, the, the government gets a copy of that data. Right Now Russia has exabytes and exabytes and exabytes of our data that they can use against us in these cyber warfare attacks. And I, I don't think that that's getting talked about enough. <laughs> So I keep saying it over and over. No, and over. no,
0: you're you're you make a really you make a frightening and great point there is that when these ransomware attacks are successful in encrypting the data, no one's really thinking about that data exfiltration. No one's that that copy of that data. Where, you know, there's no guarantee that the threat actor is going to actually destroy the data like they say.
1: Yeah, and and let's assume they don't. Okay, I mean they say they do, but let's assume they don't, because storage is cheap. (laughs) Yeah, and so I I think that's something that we need to consider, and it will it will be used against us, if and and it probably already is being used against us.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really quick, uh, you know, I just wanted to touch on this topic of the insider threat, and I know we're running out of time, but. and I appreciate I appreciate your comment that we could probably have podcasts on each of these topics right <laughs> but you know there was the recent news of the Pentagon leak right of the classified documents the national Guardsman the 21 year old who had access to all these documents um governments still kind of uncovering the 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 secrets that were shared in this this chat room right um and um and now it's they're just widespread right it's spreading sure. like wildfire everyone's got them now yep. um i mean there were briefings there were maps of the ukrainian uh, military positions how how and when vladimir putin would use nuclear weapons um under what scenarios you know how does someone protect from that insider trusted um threat i mean that that's a i mean that's something that every organization has to face yep you trust your employees to make the right decision um, what can be done about that or is that an acceptable risk
1: well I mean I I don't I don't know if it's acceptable but I think it's inevitable like you, I don't think you have a cho- you have a choice you're gonna have to trust your employees at some level um you know having the, the thing is the example you gave is should should have been protected by these systems that I'm about to mention uh, that the government basically invented, which is, you know, compartmentalized information, uh, least uh, privileged access to that information, need to know basis, all of this stuff, and I, I and that you know the sort of the zero trust technology stack kind of, right, is 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 built around that concept, and so yeah, I think um it, it, and actually when you go back to some of the larger attacks and i'm not going to i don't want to get sued so i'm not going to bring them up again but some of the larger attacks have made in the news right that have been in the news um were were things like uh the the employees credentials weren't deprovisioned after they were after they were let go right so they right. they could still log back in and uh, so just some business process stuff but it really is uh, to manage it's around, around least privilege and and compartmentalized information the but you still have to have the well, how do I know if that's not working, right? Because they're not going to tell you that they did, <laughs> right? Which is why companies like GroupSense exist to do digital risk protection monitoring for that data surfacing in places it shouldn't be. And the whole purpose behind that is, you know, most of the cyber attacks, the successful cyber attacks, uh, if you read the, your, 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 your you know former employer's DBIR report, you know, it was the bad guys had access to data that they shouldn't have had access to that, that's the, that yeah. predicated most of the successful attacks. So looking for that data showing up in places it shouldn't be, and then cleaning that up and or mitigating for that should be part of your process.
0: Yeah. So uh, you, you just gave one of them, but could you give two more things that you would invi- advise our listeners that they should do like today? And and you just talked about one of them. We talked about data hygiene, but maybe you have a couple of others that you would say, this is what I would do today to, to prevent becoming a victim.
1: Yeah, so I'll do a policy one and a technology one. So a, a policy one is uh, what, I, what I call credential policy. That would include things like password policy, right? So, you know, having a strong password, et cetera, changing it on some occasion. Um, but as part of that credential policy, uh, just making it very clear to your staff that they're not to use their corporate email credentials or the corporate login credentials on anything unrelated to the business, um, and this most of these attacks where I made the joke about where they logged in were a result of that screw up, where the the person uses their corporate credentials on iLoveKnitting.com, and they use the same password or similar, and you know the lovely lady that runs iLoveKnitting.com is not a security expert. She gets popped, all those credentials are pulled, and they use automated tools to try to find remote access entries like RDP or VPN, and they just log in. And so that one right there is a very simple one. It doesn't cost you anything other than creating a policy and making sure your employees uh, adhere to that policy. Now you have to make sure that that policy is working. The way you do that is you couple it with something like digital risk protection services, which says I, then I would, my, my tools would be telling you, Hey, look, your employee used their credentials on I love And they showed up in this, in this breach, you need to tell them that they violated policy and reset their password. Right. Um, the, the, the other one is, and uh, uh, everybody's going to roll their eyes, but multi-factor authentication. Just do those two things, and and uh, you're you're going to be a lot better off. in um, everywhere fantastic. possible, right?
0: No, that's fantastic. You're absolutely right. It's it's the um, basic blocking and tackling that I think yep. oftentimes gets missed. Yep. Uh, Kurt, look, I I appreciate your time. Uh, this has been a very provocative conversation. I'm sure that. Our listeners are, are thinking about ways that, that that they can use some of the information you shared. Thank you very much for your time. Um, as always, always a pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank you, Steve. Uh,
0: well, that's that's all for this episode. Make sure you tune in next time for Logically Speaking and stay cyber first and future ready.